Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Scott Adams, creator of Dilbert, one of the most popular comic strips of all time. Now, you might wonder why I'm talking to a cartoonist on the show, even if Dilbert is really one of my all-time favorite comic strips. Uh, Dogbert's sort of a personal hero of mine, but that's maybe another story. Anyway, uh, the reason is that in the last few years, Scott Adams has most definitely become an important part of the political conversation through his commentary on Donald Trump, as well as the best-selling book, Win Bigly. He's got a new book out now called Loser Think, How Untrained Brains Are Ruining America, which we'll be talking about today. Scott Adams, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm a, I'm a social scientist, and one of the things that we do is we like to make sure we've defined our terms. And so that's where I wanted to start with you. Uh, and, and, and the main term here, obviously, is loser think. What is it? Well, loser think is a an unproductive way of thinking caused generally by not being exposed to the way people think in different fields. For example, if you knew how economists tend to think about problems, you wouldn't need to be, uh, you know, a major in econo- in economics. You wouldn't have to be an economist yourself. A lot of the high-level ways that they think are easy to acquire. And so what I do is I teach people to fill in the gaps in their thinking that in most cases I observe people don't know they have a gap. So until somebody points it out, you probably think you're thinking just fine. Hmm. Yeah. But you you might you might be surprised. Yeah. And you know, right away, of course, people will hear that term, at least some people will, and they will take offense. They'll I I, I can just hear people saying, you know, Scott Adams, what he's talking about in large part is cognitive biases and using that offensive term loser think just shows that, you know, he's kind of a dog bird, this sort of mean, insensitive jerk. And and you sort of acknowledge, you don't just acknowledge that you actually push back against that. You make a case, not just for calling it loser think, but you make a case for mockery. And I thought that was really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I've discovered that mockery is one of society's best tools. Because other than jail, it's one of the things that controls people from doing inappropriate things uh, far more often than they already do. Uh, My favorite story on that is that Elon Musk uh, once sent a memo around to his company, and he said, just as as a way to understand what he wanted of them, he said, uh, don't do anything that would be in a Dilbert comic. That was (laughs) one of his little rules. Now. Now, the beauty of that is that everybody knows what that means, even if you don't have any examples. You know, you just automatically say, oh, OK, I, I think I'd know it when I saw it. And you probably would. So it helps to have a reference, Dilbert. You know, everybody knows it. As soon as you say it, it captures a whole bunch of ideas immediately and people get on the same page. Right. So so the Dilbert cartoon actually caused people through mockery or the risk of mockery to stay away from those things which maybe were not so supportable on the facts. Uh, so mockery is very powerful. And with loser think, I'm trying to use that same phenomena, which is, uh, and I'm, I'm careful to define loser think as being about the technique. It's not the person. Right. 
certainly because I make a lot of these mistakes myself. Uh, I don't consider myself a loser, and nobody else is either. But you might have some gaps, and uh, it's a tool to fill in those gaps. And if you're talking to somebody who maybe has gaps as well, you could point out that those are examples of loser think. And let me tell you, that will get people's uh, attention a lot faster than saying, you know, Bob, you've got a slightly <laughs> unproductive way of uh, thinking of things. Maybe yeah. maybe we could maximize that. Let's see if we can optimize that. But you just say, you know, there's an example of loser think. Yeah. That you're, you immediately have people's attention. Yeah, w- without a doubt. And, and I think that's a great distinction that you bring up between pointing out the the thing that's being done, the way of thinking and the individual. I mean, it's sort of like the, you know, the uh, hate the sin, not the sinner sort of thing. And, and that's uh, sometimes it's a distinction that's lost on some people. Yeah. One of the things that uh, we consistently do is we judge people by their, their mistakes. And uh, I've suggested in the book and elsewhere that the best way to judge people is by how they respond to their mistake. Right. Because we're, ma- we're all making mistakes. You wouldn't want to be judged by that standard yourself. You wouldn't want to be judged by, you know, something you did years ago, especially. But, uh, you know, if you respond to it right, if you acknowledge it, you take responsibility, you show remorse if that's appropriate, and then you say, here's what I'm going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. Then you have, on my on my way of thinking of the world, you just became a perfect person. You know, you, the, yeah. the, the mistake, the mistake stands, but the way you dealt with it was perfect. Right. And that brings in this idea of ego. You actually talk, I was surprised by this. You talk quite a bit about ego in the book. And part of ego is, is you link it to why loser think is so widespread and so difficult for some people to get over, right? Yeah, ego is closer to being your enemy than some definition of who you are. And so the mistake is to think that the little messages coming from your ego are really coming from you. It's more it would be more appropriate to say that's an enemy who's trying to give you bad information much of the time. So for example, your your ego is saying don't take that chance. Don't ask that person out. You'll get turned down. Don't go for that job. They'll just say no. So all the things that are holding you back are ego. So what I recommend is just to reframe your understanding of your ego. It's not you talking to yourself. It's like it's more like an enemy. And the best way to deal with it is to turn it into a tool. And the way you do that is to say, you know, today I need a little more ego because I'm going into a job interview. I'm going to do a athletic competition. It would, it would help to be confident. So you pump yourself up and that helps your performance. Science would agree that confident people perform better. You don't want to overshoot the mark, but if you're confident, that's always good. And then there are plenty of situations where you want to dial down your ego because it would be offensive to others and might make you you make bad mistakes. So one of the things I tell people to do is take a special note of how bad your predictions have been in the past. So go ahead and predict what you think based on your worldview you think will happen next in politics or the world or any other domain, make a prediction and then put it into the world. Tell a friend, tell an enemy, put it on social media, put it in a diary so that you can't uh, accidentally forget the stuff you got wrong. (laughs) It's a, is a great exercise in humility to remind yourself how often you've been wrong when you were sure you had this figured out. Yeah. So that, that keeps, keeps you modest. 
And, and, you know, I really felt when I was reading the book, I, I expected something. I don't know what I expected, but that, that word, humility, I really felt that in, in a large sense, it was a book about not false humility or false modesty, but about the importance of humility. And that was, I thought, a surprising and a, a really valuable thing. That that is a uh, astonishingly uh, good analysis. Nobody's really picked that out, but yeah, you're right on point. If if you have the right mix of humility and ego, then you can allow yourself to say, you know, maybe I haven't been thinking about things the right way. Maybe I can add a tool. Maybe I can listen listen to what this economist says. Maybe I'll learn something about how to think about these things. Yeah, humility is just one of your your greatest assets. Yeah, and and as you point out in the book, you're not some perfect being from on high saying this. I I love how throughout the book you say, uh, well, you get these lessons all the time because of course you put things out there all the time. And and as you've said, when you get something wrong, uh, your your uh, your listeners, followers let you know that, don't they? Yeah, I have the advantage of when I make a mistake in public, let's say on Twitter or something, I'll get, you know, hundreds of people calling me an idiot and that'll, that'll set you straight pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, now one of the things I've got going for me, uh, in terms of, you know, why would anybody listen to me on this topic is that I'm old, you know, I'm, uh, what am I? I'm in my sixties now <laughs> and, uh, and I have, uh, somewhat, uh, let's say, studiously added skills to my skill stack. So I have a good degree in economics. I went to business school, top business school. Uh, I've studied communication. I became a trained hypnotist. I've studied all the, the modes of persuasion, which gives you a lot of, uh, you know, a psychology kind of background somewhat indirectly. So I've, I've uh, acquired a number of thinking styles over the years. And if you're younger or you just have a little less breadth of experience, I might be able to fill in some some blanks that you just haven't been exposed to. Yeah. I guess one reason that people shouldn't listen to you or this wouldn't be a good recommendation is just because you happen to be you know, famous, right? And you have this example in the book, which I think is a great one. Uh, when you talk about Seth MacFarlane, which is Seth MacFarlane, I think is an amazing guy. He's a, he's incredibly successful in a lot of fields, but that doesn't give his tweets on climate change any particular weight, or it shouldn't. Yeah, I would uh, also uh, I would emphasize what you just said, which is he's an amazing talent probably one of the brighter guys in the in the Hollywood entertainment world at least that's my observation from yeah. outside but when he says as as he has recently on Twitter that climate change must be a big problem effectively I'm, I'm paraphrasing because all the scientists are on the same side uh, that could be true so that might be exactly what's going on. All the scientists are right. They're all on the same side. But I go through a number of examples in the book in which uh, we have thought that all the experts were right, and it turns out they weren't. The big example is nutrition. Right. We thought we, thought we understood nutrition decades ago. There was the food pyramid. There were you know, very specific recommendations. And if you had asked any citizen, maybe even any scientist, you would said, is this science? I think most people would have said, yeah, pretty much everybody agrees. This is this is the way you eat. This is better than that. But we now know that much, if not all of that, was just uh, wrong. 
And we have a much better understanding now. Maybe it'll change again. But the point is that you can't always automatically assume that the experts are right. And, you know, one thing just to keep in mind, I can't go through the whole argument here, uh, is that most of the people working in the field of climate science, for example, probably are experts on whatever they're working on directly. But in terms of uh, the measurements, for example, of what the temperature is and has been and is it going up or down, there probably aren't that many scientists who are directly you know, going out to the thermometers and the, the measuring devices and have some expertise on that. But yet all of their opinions depend on that small group who does. So if you have, I don't know, let's say 10,000 scientists all agree that climate change is X or Y, whatever it is they're agreeing on, very few of them actually are in control of or experts about the base information that controls everything. Right. which is, is, is the temperature going up? How much? Is it unique? Is it different? Uh, so just be, be aware that uh, experts will agree with other experts without necessarily sharing the same level of information that you know, the few people who really know what's going on might have. Yeah. And, and you know, because you use climate science in various examples throughout the book. And, and I got to say, at first, when I heard it, I was like, Oh God, another denier head in the sand kind of guy. Where, how's he getting his big oil payoff, whatever. But, but really it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's fair to characterize you as a denier. The more I read about it and I tried to keep an open mind, it really seemed like, well, you were just kind of looking at it in a, in a different way and, and raising some points that I actually hadn't thought about now. So that's right. You're not. You wouldn't call yourself a denier, right? You, I, maybe a skeptic on this for the reasons you outlined in the book. Would that be fair? Well, I tend to think that the science is very likely to be right in the basic science part. Mm -hmm. You know that you, if you add this to the atmosphere, temperature will go up, etc. The the part that I'm most skeptical about is the long range financial projections, right? Which assume by definition that no surprises happen. Now, we're making, uh, what, 80-year predictions based on no surprises and no real changes in technology. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's absurd. Yeah. Uh, if you've done projections uh, professionally, as I have in my earlier careers, I would do financial projections for three to five years, and they were no better than guesses. Yeah. And that's just three, three to five years where I had a really good control of the variables. I mean, I knew what the vendor was going to charge, et cetera. So imagine climate over 80 years with no reasonable assumptions about what the technology will do because nobody can really predict that stuff. Uh, so they are rather absurd. So the question is, what do you do when you've got something that looks like a real problem based on the basic science, but the projections of what is actually going to happen are far less dependable? So I go through how an, how an economist would look at it, how you would do risk management in that case, because that's the part that's missing. Yeah, we we t we tend to hear from scientists and from journalists who are writing about the scientists, but when you talk to an economist, that you you tend to get a third view, which is yeah, it might be a real big problem. We can't tell with a hundred percent certainty, but here's how you would handle it, given the uncertainty. Right. And and one of the big questions is, um, you know, what would you do if you thought that 
if the scientists are right, it's sort of a, you know, a, the end of civilization. Yeah. You know, what do you do in that case? Now, the economist would say, what are your other risks? Right. Because if you because if you have multiple things that could wipe out civilization and we do, you can't spend all of your money on the one because uh, you, you, you got to spread stuff around. Then there's also what's the benefit of just eliminating poverty? Because that saves more people than just about anything you can imagine. You know, moving people from desperately poor to not poor is one of the best things you can do for the population of Earth. And if you go aggressively against climate change, well, there's some risk that that has an impact on the economy. So, so you have massive risk of doing anything big at the same time that the technology is improving very rapidly. For example, uh, generation four nuclear technology, we're right on the cusp of being able to test some reactors that really can't melt down. They're designed so that's not even an option. And, and they eat waste from older reactors. So they actually wow. reduce, they reduce the amount of total nuclear waste. They can't melt down. The only problem is we can't get them approved, you know, because a lot of red tape, government, et cetera. And uh, the economics aren't solved, but we know how to. We yeah. know how to make them smaller, make them modular, standardized, A-B test. We know how to do all that. And in fact, you could co-locate co a lot of those things uh, right where you already have an older generation nuclear plant. So there, there are all kinds of ways to save substantially. And uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do solar and wind and the other stuff. You probably want to do all of those things as aggressively as you can. And then on top of that, you've got these uh, CO2 scrubbing technologies. There's several startups. I think several more have started since I even wrote the book, which wasn't that long ago. Uh, and some of them look promising. So we have abilities to take CO2 out of the air. We have the ability to produce clean you know, energy at a good cost with Generation 4 with no real big risk to the population. And these are the sorts of things that are not explicitly considered when you say, well, what's, what's it right. look like over the next 80 years? Well, maybe in 10 years, we can just scrub the atmosphere with big carbon scrubbers sitting out in the forest somewhere and just sucking it out of the air. Right. You just don't know. Yeah, and I think to me, the biggest thing I took away from that is so many people have what I call a, a false sense of certainty, either, you know, either way really on this. And, and the point that I really got from, from what you were arguing was that, you know, it's a lot more com complex than that. And maybe if you're absolutely positive, you know what's going on with climate change, uh, you might want to step back because this is that's probably some loser think. Yeah, the two people you should trust the least are the one who says there's no problem with climate change, it's all a hoax. Don't trust that person. And then the other person you shouldn't trust is the one who says, yeah, all the scientists say it's a problem. It's definitely a problem 100%. Right. Somewhere in the middle are the reasonable people who are saying, you know, even if it is a problem, the number of people who die every year from, let's say, weather and major weather-related catastrophes has dropped so far that our catastrophes could be 10 times worse in the future while 10 times fewer people are affected by it in, in terms of dying. So these are completely unpredictable futures. And so I recommend that you, you make your decisions 
with an understanding that there's some uncertainty. Yeah. And, and you can still do that. Like the example I gave of nuclear energy, if you think, um, if you think climate is a hoax, you still want nuclear energy because it's clean and it would be economical and it solves a lot of problems, gives us less dependence on other countries. It's everything good about it. It's the reason that Russia and China and France and other countries are building them like crazy because yeah. it works. Yeah. It's all good. So given that the deniers want nuclear energy at the same time that the people who think climate change is an existential risk would like to have a solution. And hey, here it is. You know, we're a few years, not too many years, maybe five, 10 years away from having generation four that's that's just the standard and economical. But that's plenty of time. Yeah, I mean, even even if you take AOC's 12 years to get it right, probably have plenty of time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and you don't have to solve whether climate change right. is the big risk or not. Same solution either way. Right. Now, one thing you mentioned in the book that uh, that really not startled me, but I thought was was a really interesting thing is that you said that you regularly go back and forth between CNN and Fox News. Now, I have to admit, I watch almost no TV commentary. It's just too painful for me. So I'm not sure if what you do, I, I would think is impressive or some kind of exercise in masochism. But <laughs> but I, I, maybe you could talk about why you, why you do that, why you feel it's a valuable thing to do. Well, especially because I talk about politics on my periscopes every day. I like to be informed. And watching just the news from the left, political left, or just the news from the right, won't get you anywhere near informed yeah. because uh, the rule that uh, I recommend in the book is that if both the left and the right press, let's just, I just say Fox News and CNN to, you know, as representatives sure. of those two, um, if they both report something as true, it's probably true. But if only one of them reports it as true and the other says, we're looking at the same stuff and we don't see it, you can usually bet it's not. And it wouldn't matter which side said it was true and which side said it's not. If you don't have both of them agreeing, it's probably not true. Yeah. And and this is the sort of thing, I guess what, what I think would be difficult for a lot of people is they tend to be tied into one side. And so it can literally be... Uh, a, a painful and uncomfortable experience to sit and watch or read from that other view. I mean, I've actually experienced that myself. And so since you've been doing that for a while, do you find that the more you do it, the easier it becomes to try to sort of reconcile those two worldviews? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I have my limits uh, every now <laughs> and every now and then I try to watch uh, MSNBC uh -huh. and it's hard to watch it as a news show. Right. Because sure. because I'm I tend to I end up laughing all the way through it. Now you know occasionally you know CNN and Fox News will have their own uh, laugh moments, but MSNBC is I just shake my head the whole time. It's like it feels like they're just making stuff up. I don't think I don't even think they're trying anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not true of everybody. Uh, sure. But I would but I would say the the news business. As as most people have observed by now, it's it's not really trying to be news anymore. There was a time when it was trying to be news, and you could argue whether they were succeeding or failing. But the the ability to measure with specificity who clicks on what links and why, and yeah. is this headline getting more action than this headline? Once you can measure that stuff, the people who are in charge have a fiduciary responsibility to stockholders 
to do what makes them the most money. And covering the news as fact is not even close to what makes the most money. Yeah. You, you, want to, you want to set people's hair on fire. And the best way to do that is something that's uh, not quite true. Yeah. Or, or, or at least is so fantastical that even if it were true, uh, well, it'd be amazing if it's true. And if it's not true, you're still going to get the same amount of energy and action over it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, another thing you do in the book, well, you, you point out a lot of examples of loser thing, but there's one I was hoping you could expand upon a bit is something you call the mind reading illusion, which I, which seemed to me to be just incredibly important and incredibly prevalent on with, you know, in pundits and really just general conversation in social media and other places about politics. Yeah, this is another one of those cases where putting a label or a name to something can weaponize it. Uh So I I believe we've all observed people on the news or pundits saying things about the mental, the the internal mental state of someone they don't even know. Right. You know, such as, well, it's obvious that the real reason you're doing this is for power and money and it's all up a little. Well, maybe they're right. Could be right. I'm not saying that the the people guessing what other people are thinking are always wrong, but in my experience, they're almost always wrong. And one of the ways that I know that is because I've been the subject of you know untold articles about me. Mm-hmm. So if when you read an article about yourself, you know you know what's what's true, what's mind reading, what's not. And so if I had to judge how well writers can imagine what I'm thinking, it's close to zero, or, or at, least in the, at least in the way they describe it would not be the way I would describe it because I would consider it misleading to do it their way. So when you see in the news somebody imagining they can interpret the internal mental state of a stranger, the first thing you should say is, okay, let's ignore that. What's next? Yeah. Because you should completely ignore it. There's no credibility to a stranger guessing what another person is thinking. And in our in our partisan world, they're not accurately trying to do that anyway. They're yeah. they're trying to give you a, a a version. It's not truth. Yeah. Well, and so many of the political conversations seem to me start start from the premise, whether it's uh, spoken or not, that well, Donald Trump is evil, or Nancy Pelosi hates America, or something along those lines. <laughs> right. The the real reason we want to do this is to uh, gain power. It's not about socialism or yeah. any of that other stuff. Well, it, so it's, it's just amazing how many people in politics apparently want to destroy America. You know, I mean, yeah. And I would I would sort of capture this point about the you know avoiding uh, buying into what the mind readers say. And I'll I'll borrow something that Doctor Laura once said on the radio, and it stuck with me for years. And I think she borrowed it from some, might be some Judaism, I don't know, maybe there's some history to this. But she said that uh, you are what you do, not what you're thinking. Mm. And that is such a a different way of thinking of the world, because I think most of us believe that our internal thoughts are who we are. Now, you might know, not know who I am, but my internal thoughts are who I am. It is so much better for the world and for society and better for your own mental health, I think, to say that you are what you do. So if you did bad things, it doesn't matter if you thought good things. Right. You're, you're a bad person. And if you have evil thoughts, but you never act upon them, you are A plus in my book. 
because if you can if you can do good things consistently, you're a good person. I don't right. care what you're thinking. So I, I wonder if almost that extends to, well, it doesn't necessarily matter what you tweet, but it's what you actually do in the world in your job as, say, oh, you know, president of the United States. Does it extend that far, would you say? Was that, I mean, is that reasonable? No, because, no, I would include what you say okay. as part of what you're, what you're doing. I'm talking literally about your unspoken, gotcha. unexpressed thoughts. Gotcha. So. Yeah, tweeting counts. Okay. Another thing you talk about in the book is slippery slope arguments, and those are incredibly prevalent in political debate. And you have a great way of, I think, of looking at them. You write, my objection to the slippery slope argument is that everything is a slippery slope until it isn't. Uh, Can you explain that? Yeah, the slippery slope is usually sloppy thinking. Um, And the problem is that everything is a slippery slope until something stops it. In other words, everything will head the way it's going until there's a reason not to. But in the real world, that reason to stop it almost always appears, even if it's not already there. So if things are moving in the wrong direction, people will notice it and they'll say, hey, that's moving in the wrong direction. Let's put up an obstacle and stop it. There's, There's no such thing as some kind of natural quality of the world that leads things to go in the right direction. You either have obstacles or you don't. And if you don't, you can put them there. So looking at cause and effect and, you know, what are the obstacles? What are, you know, what are people thinking? What are people doing? That might tell you something. Yeah. But imagining that there's some kind of a mysterious, magical thought that once things get going, they just keep going. There, you know, the example I use is just because you mowed your lawn, it's not a slippery slope to shaving your dog. You know, <laughs> right, you, right. You know, so um, I, I think people just use it because it's easy and yeah. lazy, and it's it can be persuasive, actually. Yeah, and even and especially, I would think in in politics, I would argue that we have the system was designed, at least in part, to sort of provide a countervailing force to make slopes <laughs> less slippery. But you know, people don't seem to. Uh, I I love that observation. Uh, if I thought about it for a little bit longer, I could probably convince myself that the entire purpose of the Constitution of the United States is to prevent slippery slopes. Yeah, like yeah, absolutely, definitely. I like that. Um, one, one thing I really liked about the book, aside from all the, all the important cognitive biases or other terms of loser think you review, you, you do talk about those ways of trying to put yourself in the mindset of someone in a different profession. And one that I thought was particularly intriguing was the suggestion that you should maybe try to think like an engineer. And that one might be a little less obvious than think like an economist or a, or a psychologist. So could you talk a little bit about what that means and why you think it's a good idea? Yeah, in full disclosure, these categories, these professional categories overlap a lot. So sure. just to make, to make the book easy to read, I said, oh, think like an engineer. But this would be common to some other uh, domains as well. So one of the things I talk about is the the one variable illusion. The illusion that you could look at this big complicated situation, and I'll use climate change again. Some of the deniers uh, write to me on Twitter probably almost every day and say, Scott, 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 uh, don't you know that the warming of the earth is caused by the sun? End of story. There's no, there's no global, you know, there's, there's no global warming. And I write back some version of this, 
So your, your theory is that the people whose job it is to study why the earth is getting warmer or if it's getting warmer, you think they forgot to consider <laughs> the sun. <laughs> there, no, no, nobody in the industry thought, you know, hey, <laughs> the sun is kind of warm. I wonder if that has an effect on anything. So as soon as you hear somebody say there's one reason for anything, one reason that Hillary Clinton lost the election. There's not one reason. There are 10,000 reasons. And if any one of them had been substantially different, depending on which, you know, what kind of reasons they are, it could have changed the result. So everybody who talks in terms of I've got the one reason, the one cause, uh, that's just nonsense almost always. Yeah. And of course, the media likes to push that narrative because it's simple and easy to kind of get out there and promote. Was persuasive. Yeah. So, so knowing that the one variable thing isn't something you should take seriously might defend you a little bit from being persuaded by it. Right. Another interesting way of thinking that you suggest is thinking like a leader, which at times can involve, at least you argue, using hyperbole. And and of course, when I think of leader and hyperbole, how could I not? Think about Donald Trump, who seems to be the king of hyperbole, or, you know, if you're anti-Trump, who seems to lie like hell. And so I think maybe this deserves a little more uh, discussion as well. You know, the value of what you see as the value of hyperbole and, and maybe also when it can go too far and, you know, start to undermine maybe the authority, the legitimacy of a, of a leader. Yeah, the thing that I think people should look for to try to decide, hey, when is this hyperbole just lying? You know, where where's that line? Uh, look for the directional truth. And by that, I mean, if your leader is telling you something that's, say, an exaggeration, but even if it were not exaggerated, you should still probably head in that direction. Then maybe all the leader is doing is getting people fired up to do something that's actually good for them. Mm-hmm. So if you said, for example, uh, there's a big threat of X or Y, and you double the size of the threat when you're talking about it, well, technically you're lying. Well, not technically, you're just <laughs> lying. That's that's just a lie. Right. But but in the domain of leadership, if the point is to get people off the couch to make them do something which they desperately do need to do. Uh, and they need to be convinced to do it, well, scaring them might be the way to do it. Uh, so in the in the single case of leadership, uh, I'm fully okay with persuasion, which can include a little bit of playing loose with the facts. Now, if, if your leader tells you a fact that's opposite of what is directionally true, well, now you've got a problem. But if your leader says, hey, uh, look at my rally, uh, 100,000 people came, and the fact checkers say, um, it's only 75,000 people. Well, that's still a lot of people. It's the same point. Sure. There's no difference in terms of how you feel about it, what you're going to do tomorrow. Um, so I think Trump, who actually talks about using hyperbole in his, in his uh, book, uh, The Art of the Deal, he talks about his value and he says he uses it and then he uses it right in front of us. So look for anything he says that looks like it's leading the country in the wrong direction. We, we see him, for example, talking up how great the economy is. Now, if you're a fact checker, you might be tempted to say, oh, I don't know. I got to quibble with what you said about this being the, the best in 50 years. It's really only the best in 25. Is that different? 
It's not different. It's really not different because what the president is doing, and he says this directly, by the way, this is not me reading his mind. He said this, that he's a cheerleader for the economy. Now, if you've studied economics, this is another case where having some exposure to other fields can give you a better vision. You know that the economy is a psychology engine. And if you feed it the right psychology, assuming there are no shortages, and we don't really have shortages of anything right now, uh, if you feed it the right uh, psychology, it will run like crazy. And this president came in basically telling us in in direct language, I'm going to talk this economy up. And then we watched him do it. Because I don't think it's a coincidence that people are so confident things are going so well. It's a psychology engine being run by the most psychologically capable leader we've ever had. And I know anybody listening to this, if you don't like him as a president, you're saying, oh, no, no. <laughs> but, but just give me this one thing. You can disagree with him on anything else. On this one thing, there's never been a better cheerleader for the economy and we have the strongest economy. Could be a coincidence. You know, I, I give Obama lots of credit for taking us off the bottom, but I think Trump has to be given credit for the way he has, he has managed the psychology about the, uh, the economy. It definitely helps. So, so then your, your sense of Donald Trump as a person, not from mind reading, but from, from studying him and, and reading, you know, the art of the deal and other things, is that this is not just sort of, a guy who's flying blind and going from his gut, but there's a, there's a real strategy involved here. He has a better sense of people and what motivates them and what matters uh, than I've ever seen uh, in anybody who's a public leader anyway. Now, uh, I think he's been accused of uh, lying 11,000 times. Is that the current? I think that's I, actually, I'm not even making that up. That's, that's like no, the that's current about right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've heard 11, it's. And, and now ask yourself, how many of those lies affected you in a way you can identify? Right. And the answer is, uh, can't think of any. Now think of all the things he said that were maybe hyperbolic and sort of, you know, uh, you, you would question the accuracy of it. But they moved you into a good place. I think we. I think he used hyperbole to move North Korea into a more flexible place. I already talked about the economy. I think that uh, maybe the way he's persuading in uh, with China is probably productive. He's treating them with great respect. At the same time, he's being super tough. Uh, that's a perfect psychological balance because he's not making it personal. He's making it just business. So he's pretty consistently a plus. On, on the big stuff. Now, you know, the little stuff, does, did he insult somebody? Did he make somebody feel bad? Did he act presidential in the way you wanted him to? No. <laughs> right. But, but, I, but I also think he has a good sense that that stuff doesn't matter the way people, at least people in the news, would like us to think it matters. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that, because uh, in the book, you talk about this a bit, the idea of normalizing. So what a lot of people will say is that, sure, OK, maybe it's, you know, maybe you're right in the sense that it didn't have a direct effect. But this sort of behavior from the president of the United States, this normalizes this sort of vulgarity and and, and low behavior and it, it demeans the country and that sort of thing. And And you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, that word normalize is a tricky one. It's a persuasion word and less less so uh, uh, it's an accurate word. And let me let me give you an example. 
So people say, President Trump, you keep criticizing the free press, and the free press, of course, is vital to uh, our democracy. Uh, stop doing that because you're going to normalize that. To which I say, wait a minute, you just made me think past the sale. We, we first have to back up and say, is the press acting in a way that uh, it should be criticized? If the answer is yes, then I absolutely want my leader to criticize them as loudly as and as you know aggressively as possible because I need to fix that. We've right. got a, a free a free press that's illegitimate. I need to fix it. Now, if the if the opposite is true, the the free press is doing the best it can. Sure, makes some mistakes, but don't we all? Then I would say, yeah, maybe you don't want to push them so hard because that's just for politics, or you know, it's not helping anything get better. But if you believe the press, uh, because of the ability to measure what gets clicks, if you believe they've drifted beyond the point where they're, um, let's say, beneficial to the society, and I and I would argue that perhaps we are there, then I will want to normalize this criticism as quickly right. as possible. Yeah. So so don't let normalize make you think past the sale. Yeah. Ask yourself if it makes sense to go where you're going. Now I just noticed. That in doing it, what you just did, you actually use the technique that you recommend in the book. Uh, in your chapter on thinking like a scientist, you suggest one thing that people might do that could be very useful is ask themselves, what if the opposite is true? And uh, talk a little bit about why you think that's such a powerful, potentially powerful question. It's a good way to uh, make sure that you don't get locked into um, some assumptions. So I do this as a, a cartoonist. And I attributed this to a scientific way of thinking because I, I think they have pretty flexible minds too. So they can say, well, what if, in fact, I was just reading a story about that. Some physicists were asking literally, well, what if the opposite is true? What if everything we thought is wrong? And scientists are good at that. Uh, it's something I do when I write comics. So when I'm creating a situation, I like to use the example of a, let's say, a character in a comic who's a doctor. The normal way a doctor would act is he would do what he could to save your life and keep you healthy. But what if the opposite were true, which is where the humor comes <laughs> yeah. in? You know, what, what, if, what if it was really a serial killer who found a way to do it legally? Mm -hmm. You know, so that that's how you write humor is you say, what if the opposite is true? And scientists do that, too. So it's a good, good way just to keep you uh, keep you humble and uh, keep you questioning your assumptions. Yeah. I, and, I, you know, in reading that, I thought, well, OK, you can use that. I mean, pretty clearly in some, you know, in some uh, current political issues like what what if there really were a deep state conspiracy event against uh, Donald Trump? What would that look like and how would that fit the facts? Or on the other side, you know, what if the president was involved with Russia and so forth, if you're you know, coming from the right? And that really does reorient your thinking in a pretty interesting way. Yeah, our brains are so simple that uh, if you were if you were to ask somebody to simply repeat a statement that they didn't believe, and by the way, this has been tested, uh, just just read out loud this statement that you believe the opposite of, and, and the person says, "All right, you know, you're paying me five dollars or whatever, I'll do that," and you can actually change people's opinion through the process of having them artificially read the opposite opinion. Or, or write the opposite opinion, which is the one that's been studied. And uh, I think that the the exercise that you do with yourself of just saying, well, what if I'm completely wrong? What if the opposite is true? Yeah. 
is, is just a good way to guard against that bias. And, and that can be it can be really tough to do because when I try to do that, it really it feels like it requires the sort of effort that I'm not used to giving. But some of the insights can be can be pretty interesting. Yeah, it can almost hurt. Yeah, you uh-huh. know, if, you, if if you're not used to it, so yeah, absolutely you know, practice, practice helps. You know, and I think one one thing that maybe helps is is pushing back against an actual person. I mean, one of the things we try to do on the show is is have people with different views on so we can sort of have that exchange. And of course, you know, it can be really tough to have civil dialogue with people who have different views. And you offer some advice on this as well. Uh, it's to start with what you call the magic question. So what's the magic question and what makes it so magical? I find that when I'm debating with people on usually political stuff, that they will consistently misinterpret my opinion, restate it in some absurd way, and then argue against the absurd opinion that they invented in their own mind, <laughs> and and then declare victory. And it's really hard to get out of that pattern because it's I would say it's close to a hundred percent of of the thousands and thousands of people who have criticized me online when they when they state what they are criticizing, it's almost never. I would say ninety five percent of the time it's some weird interpretation that I certainly you know don't yeah. hold. So to get past that, i I recommend that people ask this question. What is the one thing you believe on this topic that I don't? Mm. And what you'll find is that it makes it harder for people to reinterpret your opinion into something stupid because they've got to get down into the weeds. They might say, well, you believe that if we uh, add gun control, criminals won't get get any guns. And then you say, no, I don't believe that. Yeah. And and you just keep, keep them going until they run out of things. And I've caused people to realize that they they thought they were disagreeing with me and they weren't we, we actually were on exactly the same page but we were arguing violently only because they were misinterpreting me and arguing against their own illusion yeah well what i really like about that is it's it actually forces that person to confront that misunderstanding as opposed to sort of a more, I guess I'd say passive strategy of saying, well, let's find some common ground to start from. Your suggestion seems to me is more active in kind of, you know, in, in taking away that, well, that illusion, that, that incorrect belief. And so in a way, I think it's even more powerful, which is kind of cool. Yeah, in the world of persuasion, it's just always better to ask questions and allow somebody to change their own mind because right. we put up a de- nobody wants anybody else to change their mind. That's the last thing you want. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So now, toward the end of the book, you uh, you, you put forward two rules. First is the forty eight hour rule, and then there's the twenty year rule. Um, uh, could you talk a little bit about what these rules are and why you think they're good rules to generally abide by? Yeah, let me say that the first thing is that uh, where do manners come from? And the answer is, well, somebody. I mean, somebody yeah. had to be the fir- first one to say, you know, uh, if the elevator's closing and somebody's coming to yep. it, it'd be better manners to like hold the door from. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's and as society changes, every once in a while you have to update your manners. And here's here are two updates. One is uh, the forty-eight hour rule, and that is that if you hear some news, 
you should wait 48 hours before forming a solid opinion because the news is so often incorrect because of the model of the, the news these days that if you haven't heard the other side, you haven't heard anything. And it yeah. might take two days for the other side to organize and say, oh, let, let us research this. We'll tell you why you're wrong. So I would say that something like, I don't know, 80% of every major news story you hear is so different two days later that you wish you hadn't heard it in the first place. Right. It was just misleading. So wait 48 hours, especially if there are any, any deaths involved. If anybody's dying, wait 48 hours. But in general, wait 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Then the other rule is the 20-year rule. It has to do with the fact that technology now allows us to record all of our dumbass actions forever, <laughs> and then you'll always be held accountable for things you did 20 years ago. Now, I'm exempt from that, at least a little bit exempt, because of my age. So when I went to high school and college, there's very little in terms of any kind of a record or right. photograph or sure. video that anybody could ever find. So it would be he said, she said, or <laughs> my yeah. word against yours or something. So um, my observation is that people change so much over the course of their life in terms of just getting better. You know, we're, we're all a little more selfish, a little less ethical when we're young. Most of us get better. You know, we get less biased, more open-minded, a little more accepted, you know, if you're doing it right. I, I suppose everybody's different. But I like to think that the person I am now is substantially different than the person I was at, say, age 19. You, sure. you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to know that guy. <laughs> I, even I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> hang it out with me. Uh, um, but I think I've worked myself into, you know, a more respectable position. And I would like to apply that same the same pattern to others. Yeah. So if, if you did something terrible 20 years ago, uh, that was somebody else. I'm not going to blame you for what somebody else did. You, you're all of your, you know, pretty much all of your cells have died and been replaced. You know, you've learned, you've grown. Uh, if you're making a mistake today, well, that's important. But if yeah. you did something 20 years ago, unless it's, you know, pedophilia or murder or something, uh, I'm just not interested. Right, and and certainly those are two rules that are that are that are not really followed by anyone. I think, especially you know, the forty-eight hour rule. Uh, I feel like we used to have, uh, and and I'm old enough, and, and you're old enough to remember a very different media environment in which the forty-eight hour rule would be a lot easier to follow than it is today. When it seems like that just seems so almost quaint and old-fashioned in a way. Yeah, so both of these rules are really only necessary because of, you know, the changes in the business model of the yeah. news that and and then the uh, the fact that social media is collecting our our records forever. Yeah. Yeah, now of course anyone who follows politics and political pundits gets the whole has seen the whole, you know, range of loser think that you talk about and, and you you give pundits their own chapter in your book. And so I was wondering of all the forms of loser think you see in the political punditoc pundit punditocracy, I don't know. Um, which one do you feel is the most, let's say the most damaging, I guess. Well, the thing to protect yourself as a consumer of those pundit opinions is that anybody who's working for money, you just shouldn't trust. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I mean, everybody works for money, but I mean, if their opinions are paid opinions, then that, that should give you essentially no credibility. Yeah. Now, 
When I say no credibility, I don't mean they're always wrong. I just mean that you shouldn't automatically assume that it's right. So uh, that, that's the first rule. Just assume that money is involved. There, you should put no credibility in it. Yeah. Um, th- then beyond that, of course, they're they're using all of the techniques of loser think. But the main one is the the coincidences. So they'll say, well, there's no way to explain this if given these facts. How could you possibly explain these facts? And I like to point out that the biggest explanation, the most common explanation for any news you hear is something you didn't imagine. That's always the most likely explanation because our imaginations are limited. And if you find yourself saying or listening to a pundit who says, well, with these set of facts, he must be the yeah. next Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know, 48 hours later, you learn, oh, there was a little more context here. This wasn't anything like I thought. So beware of the coincidences that add up. And of course, the the mind reader illusion is the, yeah. the, big, the big one the pundits go for all the time. You know, that reminds me of a, of a quote that's, I think, wrongly attributed to Napoleon, something like, uh, never attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence. I think it kind of brings in a lot of that, really. Yeah, yeah, I would, in this context, I would say, uh, just assume that your imagination might be the problem here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you talk about that, too, in the book, and that was something I'd never thought about. But a problem sometimes that people have when they get into this loser think is is actually a lack of imagination. And that was a really unique way of, of looking at things, I thought. Yeah, I give the one example, which is that my car is perpetually dirty. And <laughs> if 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 observers were trying to figure out why, they'd say they'd probably say things like, "Well, he doesn't have time, or maybe he doesn't have money." But then they'd figure out, "Oh, he works at home, and he doesn't have enough money to wash his car." So they would be puzzled. They they just wouldn't wouldn't know. But they'd probably have a theory. They'd say, "Oh, he's probably saving water because he's in California or something." But the one thing they would never come up with is the actual reason that I don't wash my car, which is I have an irrational fear of public instructions. <laughs> I, I, I'm too literal. It, you know, if a if I'm standing in a store and there's a sign that says "Wait here," and then the cashier says, "Okay, you're next. Come on up." I'll, I'll momentarily be stunned because I'll be, <laughs> well, you know, excuse me, but can you overrule this sign? Because the sign says way here, but you're telling me to go up. Have you read the sign? Yeah. You know, so I'm, I have this weird, um, I don't know, incompetence in this narrow area where if there are instructions in public, I'm not confident that I can get them right. And I'm sure if I get my car washed at one of these self-service places, I'll end up like sideways in the car wash. <laughs> They'll have to dis- dismantle the building to get me out, and the he- headlines will be "Idiot Cartoonist Destroys Car Wash." <laughs> now, now you see my—if you see my car is dirty, how many of you would have guessed that was yeah, the problem? That's, that's, yeah, that take a lot of imagination. Way, yeah, and by the way, I'm not—I'm not kidding about any of that. That's, yeah. that is completely true. That's the reason my car is dirty. Oh wow, that's great. Uh, so, just to close, uh, you know, I feel like I'm seeing. It feels to me like I'm seeing more loser think. I don't know if I am or not, but you've been studying this now for a while. And so I'm wondering, overall, when you kind of pull back and look at how things are in the political world specifically and all the loser think in public life, are you optimistic about the future of the republic? 
I was born optimistic. So the the short answer is yes. Uh, If you were to look objectively, and actually I recommend people do this, at any major factor in the world, whether it's crime or, you know, uh, AIDS or anything, there, uh, there's progress on just about everything. Yeah. Almost yeah. everything in human experience is not just better, but it's amazingly better. If you were to look at the number of people who were in desperate poverty in the 60s and compare it to today, like, you know, there's, yeah. there's not much of a news story about that because it happens a little bit every year, but we've almost cured poverty. I mean, you know, we don't even think about that anymore. Yeah. Now, of course, the people are still, you know, haven't been solved as, as a major problem. But yeah, it's just helpful to say humans are amazingly uh, good at figuring stuff out. Uh, yeah. there's, there's something I call the Adam's Law of Slow-Moving Disasters, <laughs> which states that if humans can see a problem coming from far enough away, we solve it every time. Yeah. Hey, we're going to run out of food. Oh, well, we invented fertilizer and we got better at making food. And uh, hey, we're going to run out of fuel. Well, here comes fracking. Hey, we've got climate change. Well, generation four nuclear. So we're amazingly good at fixing big problems when we see them coming. The the ones that are the real problem is the one you didn't know was going to happen and it just jumps yeah. at you. Yeah, the asteroid, it's going to wipe us out in a week and a half or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. All right, well, on that optimistic note, we'll close. Scott Adams, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you don't just get our gratitude, you get a supporters exclusive bonus episode each and every week. Also, supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters only Facebook group. To learn more about all this stuff, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can visit our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is, of course, the best advertising, and we really would appreciate it if you tell folks about the show. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use is also greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us, and we're reposting things throughout the week. It's facebook.com slash page. Finally, we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Mask. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.